Welcome to the Fishers of Men podcast, brought to you by us at So Much Media. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. I'm Laura Samara Sands. This podcast is about relationships and your walk with Jesus. It's about the true stories of Christian men and women's struggles with chastity, sex, marriage, and relationships in a post-Christian culture. Welcome to another episode of the Fishers of Men podcast. Today we have a very special guest, Danielle Strickland. Hey, uh, Danielle. Hi. Great to be with you guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Danielle, you're an officer in the Salvation Army, and you've written a few books. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself on, on our podcast, just for our listeners who may not be familiar? Sure. So I've been um, a Salvation Army officer for about 22 years. Well, actually for 22 years. <laughs> and I know it's almost impossible to believe because I look so young. But, yes, um, indeed. <laughs> I spent most of those years really doing the kind of mission of the Salvation Army, which is to really love the lost and the least in the world. So in marginalized cities around the globe, doing a lot of social justice stuff, trying to get women out of prostitution and trying to stop human trafficking, that kind of ends up where I land, no matter what job they give me. Mm -hmm. I seem to keep doing that one. Yeah. And so that's kind of right now I'm the social justice director in the Western states for the Salvation Army. So we're trying to create strategies to combat human trafficking sort of on a wider scale. That's awesome. And Danielle, you wrote several books, one of the which we are speaking about today called The Liberating Truth, How Jesus Empowers Women. Our podcast, of course, is about relationships as well as everything in between, including dating and marriage and sex and chastity and all of those things. But specifically when it comes to the female, and I will say role very loosely, but there has just been various messaging in the church that come from very either conservative and liberal sides of what feminism really means in a biblical context. So we kind of wanted to talk about that today. How would you define feminism per se? Because there's it, there's so much stigma that's attached to that word, and a lot of I know conservatives skirt away, or you know there's just like this misconception. Just kind of put their guard up when they yeah, hear like oh, what do you really mean by that? You know, so we just kind of want to clear the air of like when we talk about feminism and Jesus as the feminist, what do you particularly mean by that? I mean women as equals. That's it, and that's it, and, that's, <laughs> and it's that simple. Yeah, right. why? why? It's complicated. I agree. So what would you say about Jesus being a feminist and why is it important to think about him that way? I think it's paramount to think of Jesus that way because that's how Jesus was. So one of the great problems that happens in the Western context of Christianity is we read our Bible as though Jesus lived in our time. Right. And we forget the context in which Jesus lived, but the context in which Jesus lived and the things he did with women to empower women, to mobilize women, to use women in extreme ways is unprecedented. Right. I mean, it would have been the first time in history. I mean, and even the New Testament, I mean, it goes and his followers get it because the New Testament is filled with these notions of like loving one another and submitting to each other and empowering each other and like a limitless uh, gospel that seeks to restore everything to its original purpose. So I think for too, too long, I think this is general in the, the gospel is we've, we've started the gospel story at Genesis 3, and that's not where it starts. Right. The gospel story starts in Genesis 1, 
which was the original intention and the purpose that God made everybody, including women, Uh which was equal and empowered to steward the earth, you know, and to flourish. And so sin, you know, broke all that. And we kind of, we've created these sort of structures around the consequences versus the original purposes. Yeah. Which I think has limited God's purpose for the church, for women, for races, you know, like and it's perpetuated injustice and needs to stop. We need to really like go back to the original purposes God designed humanity for. Yeah. In this book, particularly, you just have so many examples of how Jesus did that, how he empowered women, how he went to women. You call even Mary Magdalene kind of the technical first apostolic calling and commission where she's going out and to tell his male disciples that of the good news of his resurrection. Uh, You talk about Junius, which I never came across that in any studies I've done about her and her husband being the first kind of as a couple being kind of elders or or leaders in a church, and that's obviously a woman. And I I really love that you pull out and exegete all of these examples, and we just don't think about them in this way traditionally. Um, I love going back to Genesis about this word, Ezer, somebody who saves, tutor, it's usually translated as helper. Mary Ashley and I were just kind of laughing because in your book it says it indicates competency and superior strength when um, talking about Eve. And of course, we we can laugh about that as like, of course, that would be the woman. Like, of course, we are the rescuer. The rescuer. <laughs> Come in. But it's the same word you, you point out that is attributed to to God in that helper way. The God who saves. Somebody who rescues in times of need. Which I think no one has ever taught me. Just in terms of the empowerment that women can feel in being that for her family. And being that for her even just for herself in society and to stand up for herself. So yeah, I, in your, in your studies of, of all of that, like, can you tell us a little bit about that? How you felt going through discovering that, talking through that with people, I'm sure there was a lot of resistance in that idea. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, but the Salvation Army has this beautiful DNA of empowering women. Yeah. So from its origin. So that was actually one of the very beginning purposes of the Salvation Army was to empower women. So women flocked to the Salvation Army because they were looking for an outlet to be used. So I didn't really get it. I just, I thought women in the Western church were just like whining. You know, I just thought like the whole thing's overrated. (laughs) And I was doing all this like, because it wasn't my issue. You know, I was just like, I was free to minister freely. So I just never even, I I really didn't give it much thought. And then I was speaking at a lot of conferences around the world. And these women would come up to me afterwards and say like, how are you doing this? Yeah. And I would be like, what do you mean? Doing what? Like, I don't understand. And they would be like, I can't do this. I like, I still, I was like, what? Then like, go somewhere where you can, you know, like I just literally (laughs) did not get that this was an issue. And then what happened was I started researching justice issues to do this justice department for the Salvation Army in Australia at the time. Yeah. And a publisher came to me and said, we'd really like you to write a book about women in the church. And I was like, ah, I don't know if I want to write that book. I don't know if I want to be that person. Right. You know, like the feminazi, you know, like I just am doing my thing. Yeah. You're just being so you. Happened, yeah. And what happened was the same time that he, that publisher asked me to write this book and these women were saying like, we don't understand. And what about the scriptures? And I just was like, oh my gosh, you people are so weird. And then <laughs> I was studying these justice issues and I realized they were connected. 
I realized that one of the greatest roots of injustice on the earth is gender inequality. Yeah. And then what actually happened to me was I almost saw it visually like this women in the church issue in the Western world is like this little like weed. And it just is people trip on it and it's irritating and it's, you know, but every time you try to pull it, yeah, you know, it can't come out. It won't come out. Like you realize, oh my gosh, like I just pulled on this weed and it made like a church split. You know, you're just like, what just happened? It was just a little weed. But what happens is the weed is connected to the root of the deepest injustice on the planet, which is called gender inequality. Yeah. And what it looks like in the Western Christian context is it looks like a misunderstanding of scripture, a patriarchal reading of the word of God. It looks like a almost a willful blindness at the radical nature of the early church's empowerment of all people. And it, so it feels like insignificant in that it's a weed, but what I realized is it's deeply significant because it's connected to the root. And until we're really willing to deal with the root, we're not going to rid the world of injustice. And so those, I think like, I went from, this is like a small, tiny issue and people need to get over it already to like, this is maybe the most important issue on the planet right now right. because it's deeply connected to how we value one another and see one another and empower one another to change the world. So we kind of have to get to it. Yeah. That's how the journey was in writing the book. And I, and I love that because uh, there's a whole chapter dedicated to how we basically interpret words and how those words have taken root and have kind of formed our theology, but they're a misread because we're not taking a look of like what the true origin of these words really meant in the context of when it was right, when they were written, but also the context of when they were written and God's true intention. So um I just thought that was really great too, because of course everything is rooted in how we are learning about things. And if it's if it's done in a way where from a small child, you know, the head of church, for example, or head of the household can be interpreted in so many ways and people have abused that, um, not only in the household, but also in the church. So it's just enlightening people to what scripture is really talking about, which I think if, if nothing else, because of course there are going to be people that don't agree with you in, or for whatever reason, and if people are encouraged to do their own research, I think that is already a step in the right direction. There's a fantastic little book called The Blue Parakeet, which is by a biblical theologian called Scott McKnight. And I read the book to learn how to read my Bible better. Mm. Like I did. And then the issue he uses in his book is women, mm. which was a surprise to me. I didn't know it was a book in the end about women. And in it, he actually gives a great apology to a lot of women that sat under his teaching for years because he understood once he was really honest enough and fearless enough to really have a look at what the Bible was saying, he realized that he had actually perpetuated patriarchy out of fear. Mm. And, um, and he breaks it down biblically, you know, like the exegetical. So not only like what is the Bible saying, but what does it mean? The, those are the yeah. kind of two key, you know, this is what the Bible's saying. And then this is what the Bible means. And one of the great surprises in my research for the book is that even what the Bible's saying has been distorted because of who translated it. Yes. Yeah. That and that's, sense. that's so, that's just like, you know, whenever you get into that place, everyone goes, ah, we're all scared to have this conversation, which is ridiculous because we're getting better and better and better 
at translation. I mean, we're getting better at looking at what it meant and the context and the words and different words that mean those same words. And, and so we're getting better at this. And one of the examples in the book, which was helpful is, you know, when the King James version was translated and in Timothy, where it says slave masters, uh, pretty much are going to go to hell. And the translators were scared to write it because King James himself may was have a, had uh-huh, was uh-huh. a slave trader. So they made it kidnapper, which is technically the same word. And, you know, it can, it's one of the groups of words that that word means. So it's not like it's a wrong translation. I'm not suggesting the Bible's wrong. Right. I'm just saying that the word they used were serving bigger purposes and different purposes than maybe the correct best translation at the time. And so now, I mean, what a great, what a great, beautiful redemption where we can say, actually, even the New Testament understood that slave trading was an evil practice that needed to be stopped. Right. And we can save this now to be the gem that it really is to speak to culture. And the same is true of those passages about women and how they've been translated. So the word you were excited about earlier was a word called kafali, which means head. And for years and years and years, we all just have translated it as like authority and really it means source, like the head of a river, uh, which it instantly, as soon as you even just say that, it instantly changes the nature of the word, let alone how it enacts itself in real life, right? So I just think it's important, uh, the translation piece, Psalm 68, there's a beautiful yeah. passage there that says, you know, this prophetic picture of women evangelists up to their knees in blood, which in culturally is completely like that didn't happen. And was never going to happen. I mean, I was just like, what? And so the translators were like, this has to be, this can't be what they mean. You know, like even the translators themselves are like, that can't be it. So they just took out the women part, even though it says in the original text, women evangelists, they just put out great was the company or the big host. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember. They just took the word woman out. So I just think it's important, you know, when we're reading the scripture around women to know that the early translators were in a patriarchal framework. Mm -hmm. So they were interpreting even what words they decided to use about these passages in that framework. So it fit their worldview. So now, I mean, we're just, we're understanding that. And now we live in an age where we can explore more. What, what does it really mean? What is it really saying? And how is that really the fact that the translators couldn't even conceive of a world where women were not only equal, but empowered and at the head of an army you know, I mean, how exciting is that? Yeah. The scripture is so mind blowing that it blew the mind of the people trying to translate it. I mean, that's how amazing the word of God is. Yeah. So with that meaning of the word kafali, how does that, what does that look like when you're talking about head of household? Or is that the context that you were talking about for that word? Yeah, that's one of them. There's a bunch of things about that passage of scripture. I mean, one of the things is that I mean, we could take the time to break down the passages. It is in the book, if it's helpful, the liberty of truth. But I think, I mean, even the head of household, he's talking to Romans who understood that as a legal framework. So, I mean, he's not even talking to just like patriarchal people. He's talking to like legal, (laughs) patriarchal, like, and women were property. They were not loved. I mean, they were not. So what has to happen is he's talking to people who, you know, this husband is the head of the household. He's not saying, thus saith the Lord. He's saying, this is the construct of your society. This is what it looks like in your society. So then keep reading because it's actually mind blowing because he says the husband is the head 
of the household in your world, but the husband must love his wife uh-huh. as he loves himself, which to Roman ears was like, what? Yeah. Must happened. Yeah. Like that's not how this goes. Like she's property that values my estate. Like this is not, there's no, so it's like Paul's taking the construct of the current society, which is a Roman society of headship. And he's saying, but this is how it should look, which then totally implodes the construct. It's kind of like when, um, uh, Paul sends the slave back to his master. Yeah. And he writes yes. saying, you know, treat him like you would treat me. Yeah. What happens when you treat a slave like a brother? Yeah. He's no longer a slave. Yeah. That's right. It ends. It implodes. It cannot survive. So it's like it's the gospel has this like revolutionary component to it that transforms things from the inside out. And that's what you see Paul doing with marriage. And that's what you see, you know, Paul doing with slavery. That's what you see Jesus doing on an everyday level, empowering the poor and the weak and the racially, you know, prejudiced and women. Yeah. He's restoring everybody's original purpose, which is one of equality and dignity and empowerment. Yeah. So it's like almost every single. So one of my favorite stories, again, is the Mary Martha story, mm-hmm. you know, where Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus and forever and ever in Western Christianity. We all talk about how awesome it is that Mary prays and Martha works. <laughs> I'm always like, what is happening? Because what's happening is Martha's freaking out. Yeah. Because Mary's choosing to be a disciple. Yeah. And it's literally so radical that she's saying to Jesus, like, you better tell Mary to get back where she belongs, which is in gender roles. Uh-huh. And Mary's sitting in a part of the house that is reserved for men. I mean, this is she's not even allowed to be in that house. She's not allowed to be educated. And she should not be sitting at the feet of Jesus because it literally means disciple. Yeah. And um, and Jesus says to Mary, to Martha, Mary's chosen the greater thing and it will not be taken from her. In other words, this is what I'm coming to do. And I don't care what the ramifications are like, and it's like mind blowingly revolutionary justice based kingdom theology that we turn into prayer versus service. And I, you know, that's just one example of the context that we miss the great truth, the revolutionary truth of the gospel. Right. I mean, even going back to that passage about the, the man being the head, quote unquote, you know, often we use that as an excuse of, this is what the man does is the, what the woman should be doing as far as submitting to her husband. But they like, and somehow miss the part of like both, both are supposed to sacrifice for one another. Both are, both are supposed to be self giving to one another and both bodies belong to the other. I mean, in, in the symbolic way of I am no longer my own. I belong to you and vice versa for both male and female, but in this beautiful sacredness of union of marriage of them belonging to one another, but not in any sort of property way, but just this beautiful oneness of I'm now sharing flesh as it were, or or soul. And like, we're, we're in the same household and we're together and we're one. And we forget about that part. It seems when we talk about, Oh, you're going to talk about men being heads over women. Uh, My, one of my best friends used to say, well, it's, you go that route like the man's role really is harder because he has to be sacrificial and he has to give himself to the woman. But still, the 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 language of the Bible does speak about women also having to be that for her husband to some degree as well. So it, it is this kind of equal of giving of one another and giving up your once your your individuality, but not in this <laughs> denying my identity type way that I think we have misinterpreted as a society. 
and this is the deal too. I mean, it's, and the, again, we're back to context because the reason why Paul has to emphasize the male's role in the relationship is the female had no role. So it was really marriage in that relationship was more like slavery and servitude. Yeah. So that, you know, there's no, he doesn't have to tell the woman to submit because that's all she's ever done and all she's ever known. Yeah. So he's really talking to men. He's talking to men. And even like, you know, all those areas around divorce, I was hearing a lot of people saying, you know, like Jesus is talking to men about the abuse of practice of divorcing wives that are needy and leaving them without shelter or provision or and the injustice of that. So he's not a patriarchal society. He's not necessarily talking to women in those passages. He's talking to men. And that changes the way you view the passage because we all, we view it with like, like we have these relationships today that are pretty much based in equality because that's how the world works. And that's how our ideas of being human work, but that's not how their ideas of being human worked. And so that's the revolution, revolutionary practice. And the only other thing about the marriage piece that I find so disturbing is that, you know, Paul says that marriage is meant to be the mystery of, of God re- reflected to the world. Mm-hmm. You know, so that there is this this self giving to each other, this self love, this this selfless love. So there's this like mutuality, like we submit to one another in love. Sort of yeah. like I talk about our our views of God as Trinity. You know, is God in charge of the Trinity? And I, you know, there's a lot of churches who might say yes, He is, right. which would be heretical, mm-hmm. because we understand that God is three in one. Yeah, so so there is this like mysterious unity in the Trinity where, you know, they're all co-equal in power and glory. This is our doctrine of the Trinity that we don't understand it. It's a mystery. Yeah. And this is what Paul is saying is supposed to be reflected in marriage. Right. Is this mystery of it. So who's in charge of my marriage? Well, it's a mystery. And, it, you know, it depends on what day you ask and what decision we're making and who's there at the time. And, you know, it's this like bundle of beautiful love that's submitting to each other and submitting to each other and submitting to each other and using our gifts and our skills in such a way to better the world. It's meant to reflect God to the world. So I always say, what kind of a marriage do you want? Do you want a marriage that reflects God to the world? Because if that's what you want, then a marriage that's submitted to one another, that is a true reflection of oneness. Yeah. Is a reflection of God to the world, the submitting to one another in love. And you never get God saying, you know, don't listen to Jesus. He's just going through a phase, you know, (laughs) never get like the Holy Spirit saying, no, I'm really the boss. You know, no one's fighting about who's in charge. Everyone's always pointing to the other person in this kind of selfless reflection of love. You know, Holy Spirit's like, you should look at Jesus. He's amazing. And Jesus is like, my God, my dad is like awesome. And like, wait till the Holy Spirit comes. He's going to like teach you everything. And yeah, you know, and God's like, you should look at my son. He's amazing. You know, so it's just like, they're constantly reflecting honor and love towards one another and no one's battling for hierarchy. Yeah. I, I, I forgot who said it. It was recently, either somebody on our podcast or someone I was talking to, but they were saying something like once power dynamics enters the conversation between in a marriage context, then you kind of lost the point of what this passage is even talking about. Cause it's not about who really is in power, who gets the last say or whatnot. It's, it's about again, serving each other and submitting to one another and preferring the other before yourself. And if you were both doing that, there's never going to be this need of, Oh, but I say this, or I want this, or I want it to be like this. I mean, if it's a mutual agreement that you're going to have a dialogue, then that will, that should never come into play about who gets more power than the other, because that's not what a marriage is supposed to be. 
And I, I love that you in the book talk about how, because I fell into this as well, like on a pragmatic level, it's like, okay, well, if you have a decision that needs to be made and then you both husband and wife are, are both in disagreement, then ultimately the man has to make the decision, which I'm trying, I'm starting to see how kind of backwards that is. It's like now I'm regulating myself a hundred years before where I'm giving myself three quarters of a vote versus a whole vote. <laughs> so, and, and luckily my husband is absolutely not even that way, but he, he agrees. Like, we're just going to keep talking until we do come to a conclusion because it's, it's not about, I'm going to just say this because I'm a man and I get to make a decision. It's like, who's the most more informed about the subject? Are you both seeking out wisdom with regards to whatever decision you need to make? Instead of just having this this direct, you make the decision, you're the man. Because that puts pressure on him. And then that, you know, maybe relieves me of responsibility. But it doesn't because I'm still responsible for my household to the degree that I'm part of it. And I'm a partner in it. So I can't just put that all on him. Well, and it's also, I think, a matter of using your gifts. And mm-hmm. here's one of the things that the your marriage being a reflection of God to the world helps me with. It helps me from keeping marriage as its own sake. This is really important because otherwise marriage that's narcissistic isn't yeah. godlike, no matter how, how. So marriage, your, your relationship with your spouse is meant to be a means by which the world knows God. Yeah. And it broke so my it, heart. Sorry. Go it ahead. rescues. So it rescues you from this, like, oh, it's got to be about us. Yeah. You know, like it's, actually, it's not about you. It's about God reflecting himself through yeah. you and through your relationships to the world. So if you... If you do hierarchy in your relationship, you're reflecting Genesis 3 to the world. This is sin. You're literally like using your marriage as a reflection of what sin looks like in real life. Mm -hmm. But if you can do selfless submission, so if you can do love one another and honor one another, and then you're going to reflect God to the world and the original purposes that God has for everybody in the world. And that's a sign and a wonder. That's like a a marriage that people go, how do you do that? Like, you know, and we have such an opportunity to do this. This is the thing. Like I I never really realized till I wrote this book, how the world's deepest pain is actually God's solution. Like we have the solution to the world's deepest pain. Right. And that is so empowering. If we could figure that out, you know, and just, it's not even about our own happiness. Right. It will make us happier. You know, sort of like the gospel is not just about us, but it will be like a great source of love and joy and peace for us. But, it's actually bigger than us. And yeah. that's why marriage, I think, is often under attack um, as well. But, yeah, it yeah. broke my heart about the, the passage in which you reflect all those stats. Well, this was 2011, but of like just the divorce rates of just believers having the skyrocketed divorce rate versus uh, agnostics and atheists. And if we were supposed to be reflecting exactly as you say, God's love through our marriages, like how awful is it that we are leading in divorces yeah so that that was just something that struck me I I don't know that I ever saw statistics like right next to each other I just always thought that it was kind of similar yeah kind of just like across the board because oh we're human but it it makes a difference to think oh wow no Christians are leading in divorces and that is heartbreaking because of course God hates divorce yeah and I think I mean, I think if you model your relationship after sin, you're going to lead to divorce. Like that's just where sin leads, isn't it? Is to destruction. So that's an interesting in and of itself. But I also think like when you're talking about at a pragmatic level, like my husband and I, we just, 
you know, we were gifted in different ways. Yeah. So when it comes down to decisions that have to be made, we try to go with whoever's most gifted in that area. Yeah. And I know it doesn't always work. There are some places where we both are gifted and we're just like, we just not going to agree. And usually we wait till we agree or we give permission. If somebody feels really passionate about it, we usually just say, okay, go with it. You know, what's the worst that could happen? We make a mistake, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll do the next thing. Yeah. So I just, I, I think it's not that hard on a practical level to honor one another and to submit to each other with a godly love that reflects the oneness of uh, the Trinity. The question I already always ask, is this going to make our lives bigger, better? Yeah. Is it going to expand our love to the world? Is this going to make a difference? And if that's, if the answer is yes, then let's do it. Well, it's kind of funny that we're even talking about it in this way. Cause I don't know. I'm just thinking about like, like there are so many relationships where people have to make decisions like business relationships, world leaders, and nobody ever talks about one like needing to submit to the other <laughs> or, you know, like one person needing to take the power and, yeah. and make the decision. And, you know, like there's so many decisions that in the history of the world have gotten made somehow. Yeah. <laughs> without this. Well, either by force sometimes. That's true. Which, that you know, true. again, of course, is not <laughs> a healthy <laughs> healthy relationship. But, but I'm just talking about there are lots of healthy decisions that sure. somehow get made. But but one thing uh, about your describing marriage as imaging God, I think that that is also a really good answer to people who interpret female empowerment or equality as automatically disrespecting men or automatically undermining undermining some, yeah, somehow. Yeah. yeah. But it goes back to like what I was saying earlier is like I was giving myself three quarters of a vote because I was thinking, well, in the end, I'm going to give the man, whether that's in a church hierarchy or in a marriage hierarchy, that that decision. But I love, again, back to this concept of preferring the other before yourself, even if you disagree, even going back and saying, let's give one another permission to do it. Well, I, I might disagree with you, but I love you and I prefer let's make this decision together. I may not agree, but let's go ahead with what you want to do and then we'll see what happens, you know? And yeah, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, it depends on the decision, of course. <laughs> I think I think we have lost this, that concept of wanting, preferring one another, preferring the other for honoring and honoring one another. And I haven't read it, but we had a we had a friend on our podcast a while ago because um, we did a, an episode on complementarianism and then we did egalitarianism. And she just kind of hated this book called Love and Respect. I haven't read it. I feel like I should just because I want to know what it's all about. But, you know, this whole concept that women need to be loved and men need to be respected. And, and just that premise alone gives me just kind of this pause of, OK, I guess I get it. But. Men need to... But don't both need both? Yeah, both need both. And yes, I may not always deserve love, but I feel like when you talk about respect, I can respect you in one way, but I but if it's... I feel like a lot of that can lead to a lot of abuse. If you're just... If you're just saying, oh, I need to respect you because you're a man. No matter what. No matter what. Like, that, that leads to such destructive dynamics. Yeah, I think whenever... And that's one of my... I think that's one of the key things in the book as well is whenever you gender anything. Yeah. You, you gender missed, yeah. When you've just kind of missed the celebration of God's beautiful diversity. And you know, whenever you do that as well, it only takes you about two minutes to find an exception. Yeah. 
you know, like every time, like, yeah. so whenever you go, you know, women are this way and men are this way. Like, you know, two minutes later, you meet someone who doesn't fit the, the, the role. So it just doesn't work. Like practically it doesn't work. I remember a marriage specialist coming to our church and saying, you know, men do the books cause they're financially smart and women, you know, and, and our like finance advisor was a woman and her <laughs> husband was there and we were just like, what? Yeah. Like, in our church, that doesn't work because our financial advisor is a woman and she's amazing. And that's what she does for yeah. a living. You know, like it just doesn't work. So we just need to stop doing that. So I think anything that's kind of like men need this and women need this, I think it's just missing the point. Like people everywhere need things as they need things. Like, and if we loved one another, well, we would know what people need. Yeah. And so you get to know the person. There are some insecure, hurt men that need respect. And, and okay, so let's, let's try to give them what they need, you know? And then there are also some women who desperately need love. There's tons of them. I know tons of them. And then there's also men who need love and there's women who are insecure and desperately need to be respected. And, you know, and so like, let's just, let's just be about the kingdom. And that's, I think that's one of the great, the radical things about Jesus is he does those things all the time to the most unlikely, yeah. unstereotypical categories you know like he he brings choice and dignity and respect to people who have not had it ever yeah and vice versa he brings love to pharisees and religious folks who've only yeah. been punished and he brings them love so i mean it's just i think it's really just having our eyes open about how we can be about what god called us to be about which is blessing the world you know and so how do we do that and how do we do that in our relationships with men uh, as women? And how do we do that in our relationships with women as men? I mean, that, that ends up being the bigger question. That's great. We ha we did have a question about relationship dynamic in marriage and in church, but I think we touched on that already. In your book, you talk about the giftings that God gives us, the Holy Spirit moving. You have all these examples of women in the last you know, just in history of who was, and, and Catherine Booth being one of them, just being empowered by the Holy Spirit himself or itself, um, just moving. Or herself. Or herself, exactly. In, and moving in, in history, in society, and just feeling like this is what God has called me to do and not letting anybody, man or woman, let, her, let that person down and, and just going for it. And I think it's important for us to hold on to that because I think, I remember back in the back in the day like when I was 12 I remember turning to mom and like I want to be a preacher and then you know we were very new to the faith very 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 new this this is within the last first year and my mom's like oh I don't I don't think you, <laughs> you'll be able to do that because you're a girl I, I, I just remember that being so stark in my memory of just like sitting in the driveway thinking I want to be a preacher and just being shot down at 12 years old um wow. but never realizing you know as I grew up how that, I mean, that was a small example, but like just in the century, in the, in the history of women, that women have been told no based on their gender. And you, you pointed out like it's, it's point, it's like racism. It is because it's sexism, but it's also telling somebody they can't do something because based on their ethnicity or some color of their skin, it's, and we are still like, and we're still here in 2017. Which is evidence of how crazy it is, isn't it? That we're still having that conversation. So you're in this generation at 12 years old, you're being told, you know, that's yeah. not possible, which is like psycho crazy. I mean, not only is it possible, it's probably like the best thing you could ever do and should do, by the way. So do it. 
<laughs> I think we, I found a different avenue to, to right. rant and rave. No, I'm just kidding. I, I would like to ask, yes, so please. how can we as women, both in and out of relationships, how can we further our relationship with Jesus and find empowerment from him and get help from God finding our identity as women? Yeah, I think the way that I've done that most successfully is prayer and spending time with God, you know, finding out what he thinks of me, how he made me, how he loves me and whatever he asks me to do. I mean, this is recently my great, great joy has been to discover Jesus as the fully submitted one. It says in scripture that he was the submitted one. It's one of his titles. He was the submitted one. And then I actually started to look at his life about looking for submission, you know, and I couldn't really find it. I could, I mean, he was unsubmitted to his family. He was unsubmitted to the Romans. He was unsubmitted to the religious order. He was even unsubmitted to his disciples. You know, he was like, no, nope, not going to do what you want me to do, right? It was constantly unsubmitted to the crowd. But to so the father, how, but to the right. father he was, right? That's correct. Yeah. So he was fully submitted to the father. He was fully submitted to God, which means that the posture of submission, this is what's so misunderstood, I think, in the church, because religion has been used as a controlling right. mechanism for so long is that to be truly f- submitted to God is to be unsubmitted to everybody else. Right. Which I think is like, a cre- even to say That's that last thing, so radical. But actually, the more I'm looking at Jesus's life, the more I realize like he's just like, you know, fully submitted to God. And the full submission of God means to do whatever God tells you to do, regardless of what other people think. It's amazing. Or act or say, or whatever those consequences are, even if those consequences are death. You know, and whenever, especially in the gender conversation in the church, I mean, Catherine Booth was a great example of somebody who theoretically believed it was possible for women to speak, but didn't speak mm-hmm. until God spoke to her one day in a, in a, and her husband was preaching. He was the famous evangelist. He was a very famous evangelist and the hall's packed and she's sitting like in the first row and God speaks to her and says, I want you to speak now. And Catherine Booth says, no, 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 no. Now's not a good time. Like my husband's preaching. I'm not even a good preacher. She was shy and awkward. She wasn't like a public, but she was a theologian and she loved God. And the Holy Spirit said to her again, no, I'm asking you to speak right now. No. And she said, I don't, I can't do this right now. It would be embarrassing to my husband. Like this is the wrong, I'm not on the bill to preach. Like, and then she said, finally, it occurred to her that she was arguing with God. <laughs> Yeah. And so she said, uh, okay. And she just stood up and she said, I have a word like as awkward. Imagine how awkward this yeah, is in the right. middle of the campaign. The hall is full. Her husband's preaching and she stands up and says, I have a word. And William Booth, because he also was submitted to God said, oh, my wife has a word <laughs> and sat down so she could speak. And she got up on the platform and spoke and like, every, you know, there was weeping and repentance and it was like a sign and a wonder because women didn't speak. And the next night she was on to speak and there were 10,000 people lined up to hear her. I mean, it was like that, you know, like, wow. and ultimately what Catherine Booth was submitted to is God. And in order for her to be submitted to God in that moment meant she had to kind of come out of this false submission to every other thing, what people would think, the cultural norm, even her husband's feelings. I mean, everything kind of had to be like undone for her to do what God called her to do. And I think I'm more and more discovering that full submission to, to really follow Jesus in an act of full submission means to be completely submitted to what God wants you to do and then to do that. Mm-hmm regardless of what other people think or what culture says or, you yeah. know, I mean, and, and that's radical and a bit scary to think about. 
But I think that's the example Jesus sent. Yeah. And I, that sounds really powerful. And I know that people would take this and say, well, that would extend being God's will for my life would extend into his word. And if we are misinterpreting his word and it's contradicting what like my spirit feels is being called to do or the Holy Spirit in me is calling me to do and it doesn't match up to scripture, I can see how obviously that could just send you on this spiral spiral of <laughs> implosion of like, wait, but God's telling me this, but scripture is telling me this and the contradiction can be so maddening if you are not interpreting scripture correctly. Well, I think that's where tradition, like looking at examples of people that you can tell are, have been walking in the spirit right. and have been following God's will throughout church history. And yeah. I, I love what you said. I, that's an idea that kind of goes hand in hand with something I've been reading a lot about lately about how basically all structures of society and the things that we most worry about are all worries of our false self, like our ego. Yeah. Uh, that's just kind of a construct and it's not godly. And it's even, in fact, even kind of in, it's in dissonance with God, even kind of attacking God. Yeah. And I think, I think it's uh, really important too for women to acknowledge that the ego manifests itself in pride, but also in false submission and false mm -hmm. humility. Mm -hmm. So, and that's, yeah. it's still narcissism. It's still fear based. And I guess the question I always ask, I mean, I'm in a, I'm in recovery for many, many years from addiction and it's been so helpful to me just in terms of dealing with ego and pride and yeah. fear. And I ask myself a lot at times, like even daily, like, am I, is, am I living out of faith or am I living out of fear today? Yeah. yeah. That's a good question. And, that's, and even as a relationship, like if you go back to marriage, like even in your marriage, are you living out of faith or are you living out of fear today? Right. And I want to live a life of faith. I don't want to be, I don't want my life to be dominated by fear in any respect. I want to, I want my life to be dominated by faith. So what does that look like? And to truly submit to the purposes of God that, that can have some hard consequences, but they're good ones. And we could trust God, you know, and that's the journey of faith mm -hmm. is actually to trust God with what he's asked us to, to do. It's beautiful. Yeah. I think that is a good word <laughs> to end <laughs> Is on. there anything else that you'd like to, any other messages you'd like to give to our listeners? Yeah, look, just on the women stuff, uh, we need more women to speak. We need more women to lead. So I, I just always encourage women, just do whatever you can, wherever you can, just, just be the change that we need. And I think as we, you know, I think too many of us think too much about it sometimes. So we just got to get to it. Just, just get to it. Just do it really like, just, just do the thing that's in front of you to do, do the first thing that's available for you to do and then go from there. But we really need, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people. I've been trying to get more women speaker spots on platform stages to main settings. You know, I'm, I'm aware that there's not enough of them. So there are little girls all over the planet who think they can never be a speaker because they've never seen one. You know, there's that, you know, that's just one little tiny area. But because I am a speaker, that's one of the things that I'm trying to do. And I hear from people all the time, uh, conference organizers who just say, I keep asking them and they keep declining. So I think there's actually this like internal, like, I couldn't, I'm scared Right. Or it'll cost me too much, you know, like all those sort of things. And I just, I feel like that word, like what, let's live what we believe, like live a life of faith, like take the risk, 
you know, and then, I mean, at the flip side, I'm telling conference organizers, you know, they could be mediocre, just like most of the men you invite. Like, it wouldn't be terrible to have a mediocre woman speaker. I mean, like, you know, because they're always like, they have to be amazing. I'm like, really? Because, like, there's a lot of not amazing men that speak regularly. You know, like, no offense, but that's a fairly standard. Uh, and so it's also just, like, take the risk. Maybe you won't be amazing, but maybe you'll at least be obedient. Maybe you'll, like, live a life of faith. Like, maybe you'll grow in that area. Maybe, like, the practice will actually be. And who knows what people are going to be released as a result of your uh, obedience to God. So I just, I think we need to shake off the fear because there's so much to do. And there's so like, literally there's just so much to do. Like we need every woman in the fight. Like we really do. We've got like a lot to do on the earth. Um, so I just encourage everyone who's listening. If you're in a marriage, I just encourage you to live a, a, the kind of marriage that would reflect God to the world. And the beauty of the empowering presence of God in in the earth uh, wouldn't that be just amazing? Um, yeah, so just just to get on with loving each other and loving the world and loving God, you know, as best we can. Thank you for listening to our podcast. This has been another episode of Fishers of Men. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email us at fishersofmenpodcast at gmail or find us on our website at fishersofmenpodcast.com. We are also on Facebook under Fishers of Men. Follow us on Twitter at at LA Gone Fishing or on Instagram at Fishers of Men Podcast. There is an underscore after each word. Please also remember to rate and make comments on iTunes if you feel so inclined. It's really important so that other people can discover our podcast. I'm Larson Mary Sams. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. Until next time, keep swimming.